Phoenix Talks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing the Moderna deal with Samsung for COVID vaccine production and ways fruit can lower the risk of type 2 diabetes. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Mira Nabolsi. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to start off with this story today about the association and link between fruit and type 2 diabetes, and it may not be what you think. So researchers at the Edith Cowan University Institute for Nutrition Research in Perth, Australia, uh, actually found in a study that consuming fruit um, may in fact reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. They found that having at least two servings of fruit a day was linked to a 36% lower odds of developing the disease. The study was published in the Endocrine Society's Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And it found that having those two helpings of fruit led to higher measures of insulin sensitivity than those who ate less than half a serving. So diabetes, of course, is a growing health problem globally. In 2019, approximately 463 million adults worldwide had diabetes. And it's expected that that number is gonna grow to almost 700 million by 2045. And an additional over 370 million people are considered to be at at an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And that's, of course, the most common form of the condition. Uh, So this research is quite interesting, um, as they found that, you know, we typically think that fruit has a lot of, fruit does have a lot of uh, sugar. And so therefore, a lot of people avoid it, thinking that it may lead to um, a higher risk of diabetes, but this study actually shows that the association between fruit intake and um, may actually lead to a reduced need of the body to make um, insulin to maintain um, blood glucose levels. So basically, the body would need to make less insulin to maintain those levels. Uh, So the new study actually builds on previous evidence from other studies. And so this is not the first study that's shown that is showing a link between fruit and a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. So a study in 2013 published in the BMJ also demonstrated that consuming whole fruits such as blueberries, grapes and apples was associated with a significantly lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And interestingly, both the BMJ study from 2013 and this latest Australian research show that high consumption of fruit juice is associated with a higher risk of type 2 diabetes. So really, the key seems to be having those whole fruits and not uh, the juice. 
However, uh, a study in 2017, um, which was a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials, actually showed that consuming 100% fruit juice was indeed actually associated with um, measures of glucose control and uh, was not associated, excuse me, with measures of glucose control, uh, nor an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. So Dr. Bongdano was one of the lead authors on this, uh, on the newest Australian research. And according to her, she said that the higher insulin sensitivity and a lower risk of diabetes, again, was only observed for people who consumed whole fruit and not fruit juice in their study. And it's likely because juice, of course, tends to be much higher in sugar and lower in fiber. And so the research comes from um, data that was analyzed from the OSDAB study, which is short for the Australian Diabetes Obesity and Lifestyle Study, um, that began in the late 90s, so 1919, 1999, and uh, between 1999 and 2000. And so this study actually has over 7,000 Australians, and they could, conducted an analysis of the data uh, looking at uh, metrics such as diabetes, prediabetes, heart disease, and kidney disease, uh, looking for risk factors that might be associated, associated with the development of these conditions. Uh, so participants in the study gave information on their fruit and fruit juice intake through a food frequency questionnaire. And the researchers found that people who ate more whole fruits had that uh, lower odds of developing diabetes at the five-year mark. So, of course, fruit um, is a great source of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and other phytochemicals that may increase insulin sensitivity. And, of course, fiber helps regulate the release of sugar into the blood as well, um, helping people to feel fuller longer and uh, because fruits have a low glycemic index. So just wanted to know what your take is on this study and does it potentially make you look at fruit differently perhaps with respect to sugar content? Yeah, I think this is just further proof that fruit is, you know, it can almost, it's nature's medicine in a way. It can almost do no wrong. And I know, you know, I'm aware of how high, um, you know, some some fruits, they're, they're, the levels of sugar um, are, but I always was taught sort of that it's a different type of fruit and uh, sorry, it's a different type of sugar and it's a sugar that we should be consuming. Um, and, you know, obviously you can overeat anything, but I think, yeah, like I said, it's just kind of further proof that, um, you know, whole fruits, not necessarily the juices, um, are truly like one of the best foods and definitely can do something for our, you know, our lifespan and helping ward off any, um, any illnesses. So it's great news. It's great for the validation. Yeah, especially since um, fruit, I think, you know, in the recent past has kind of been demonized almost, um, you know, with respect to uh, just people being more health conscious and, and trying to avoid fruits because of the high sugar content. But then, uh, as you said, like nature's bounty, right? Nature has the perfect mix and blend of, of the, the fiber and all the other vitamins that come along with it. So I, all of that in conjunction probably is what's at play here uh, where you see um, 
increased insulin sensitivity and a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, which is great given uh, how prevalent uh, type 2 is, uh, is currently and is going to become the future, which is kind of scary. Yeah, I was going to say um, a lot of these like trendier diets or fad diets nowadays actually tell you not to eat any fruits, which is something that I've been worried about. Uh, wary about um you know like the keto diet for example um you can't have any fruit but people swear by it and they believe it you know benefits their lifestyle in the long term and things like that so a lot of nutritionists and dietitians actually tell their their you know their patients not to consume fruit which worries me because the older generations that we have actually promote the the consumption of fruit and they generally are living longer lives right and healthier healthier lives until they get older and you know life happens but yeah it's just it's just interesting to see that that idea is now being flipped around and it's like actually consumer fruits and the sugars are good for you and they will give you long-term health benefits yeah and all you know every fruit is different as well i think uh, i was looking at some of the other studies and um you know blueberries and uh, especially berries compared to let's say bananas um they have a whole different um sugar profile nutrient profile so um i think uh, one study actually said that it's the variety of fruits that you have in the diet that uh, is is really strongly associated with that lower risk of type 2 diabetes so it's not kind of like uh, just having that apple a day <laughs> is going to do the trick it's really having that variety and i don't think they've been able to really pinpoint which fruits are like the magic bullet for whatever disease but um yeah it seems to be yeah variety is the spice of life anyway so (laughs) yeah I mean I understand not eating certain fruits if it you know upsets your stomach or there's a certain amount of you know like you have a cap on sugar for some reason but I don't think it's ever advisable to just tell people to eat no fruit because where else are you going to get some of those nutrients from like you must have to take supplements to sort of you know, replace that. But I don't know, to me, like fruits are, especially pomegranates, I'm a huge pomegranate lover. And that is like a biblical fruit. It's like, (laughs) it's like a holy fruit, you know, it's like, incredible for you. It's beautiful. It tastes delicious. Like, yeah, so I like this study. (laughs) There's no way that can be bad for you, right? No! (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving on to another story I have here, Uh, just sort of an update on where things are at with Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, So Moderna has been facing a lot of issues in terms of manufacturing of its vaccine. And that's because the company is only like a decade old. Um, And this, this vaccine is actually their first ever approved, authorized product um, to date. So they have one manufacturing site in in Massachusetts. And so they were not prepared for what what, what was to come with the the pandemic and with having a successful vaccine. Now the issue became, well, how do we produce um, enough doses to meet the global need of billions of doses? So Moderna has enlisted the help of various uh, companies to help in the manufacturing of their COVID-19 vaccine. And recently, it's enlisted the services of Samsung Biologics, which is a CDMO based in South Korea. 
And as part of the agreement, Samsung, uh, not to be confused with the electronics maker, uh, will provide large-scale commercial fill-finishing manufacturing for Moderna's mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccine. So once the deal is finalized, uh, Samsung says that the technology transfer will begin immediately, of course, uh, given the urgent need for uh, churning out millions of doses of uh, the vaccine. And the facilities have a state-of-the-art production line with aseptic fill finish, labeling and packaging services that are equipped to uh, handle and produce um, hundreds of millions of doses. And these vaccine doses are actually intended for countries outside of the U.S. Um, and the manufacturing is planned to begin in the third quarter of 2021. They didn't specify which countries exactly will get the doses. And so Moderna announced uh, just last month uh, before striking this deal with Samsung that it's upping its COVID-19 vaccine um, targets um, to 800 million to a billion doses this year and to have 3 billion doses by 2022. So Moderna has also partnered with other CDMOs, um, including Swiss uh, CDMO Lonza, and that was one of the first um, companies that it struck a deal with back in May of last year, actually. And it also recently announced an expanded agreement with Catalent. Um, it also has production deals with French pharma company Sanofi, um, which will uh, produce 200 millions of the vaccine. And um, Sanofi actually had a candidate COVID-19 vaccine that it was developing in conjunction with GSK, but unfortunately, um, things didn't pan out very well with that vaccine. So it still wanted to help out um, with the vaccine efforts in the pandemic. So it's partnered not only with um, Moderna, but also has agreements with Pfizer, um, as well as Johnson & Johnson to manufacture uh, doses of their vaccines. Uh, so Moderna also has deals with uh, a company in Spain, and it's looking to advance talks for other manufacturing um, partnerships as well. So yeah, I just wanted to update you guys on uh, sort of where Moderna is at because uh, we, you know, Pfizer is actually dominating this space, at least in Western countries. Um, and you know, people didn't quite understand that initially why, but makes sense. You know, Pfizer's a, a very old company, has 40 different sites around the world um, that can have manufacturing sites and facilities that are churning out uh, millions of doses. But Moderna just doesn't have that capacity. So I thought it would be kind of uh, get to enlighten people as to what is going on. But I do know, Sydney, that you did get the Moderna vaccine. You were one of the lucky ones, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. I didn't, re well, I didn't realize until reading your article that this was Moderna's first actual approved, um, you know, vaccine and or product ever, which is crazy to me, right? Like yeah. <laughs> I had never heard of Moderna, but I figured, oh, they must have some prescription medications I've never heard of. Like if they're producing a vaccine that's going to you know to the, the the whole world they must have produced other things before but yeah I almost feel in a way uh not regretful but worried about when I'll be getting my second dose because I know that the production has not been as um fast as Pfizer um but I guess I guess they're really trying to ramp it up because if you 
if you give the first dose, you have to also, you know, deliver on that second dose. And a lot of people like myself have gotten the first of Moderna. So yeah, I'm Well, I'm we hoping. do, yeah, we do have mixing and matching going on, right? So yeah. there's that as well uh, for AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson. I think um, some people who got the first doses of those, they're now being offered uh, Pfizer as a second dose. So maybe the, it may be the case with Moderna as well. So there's, you know, uh, the research and data is coming out showing that um, it's okay to do so. So it's also crazy that Moderna is competing with Pfizer, right? It's such a huge company, like you said, and such an old company that's been around for along for so so long. And you know, having their name in the market, Moderna is now basically up there just by producing this COVID vaccine. So I think this was a really smart move for, you know, a pharma company to jump on that bandwagon and now become one of the big companies around the world. So I think that will really benefit them in the future. Yeah, luck was definitely in its favor because we kind of think that, you know, oh, well, we got these vaccines so fast, but it wasn't just like these handful of companies that were working on the vaccines. There were hundreds of companies worldwide. Yeah. And so we only have how many, like half a dozen or so vaccines from different companies. So yeah, um, I think Moderna really fared well um, uh, with its uh, its shot. And so Moderna actually um, specializes in, in mRNA technology. So it's been developing uh, therapeutics, mRNA-based uh, therapeutics. So it had the technology platforms ready to go um, and plug and play. And uh, lo and behold, it got its first product, which happened to be a product that <laughs> is uh, addressing a pandemic. <laughs> wondering if, if if they were all sitting there kind of waiting for this to happen. Like if they've been around for 10 years and this is their first product and then they hear about COVID and they're like, guys, finally. Like, <laughs> No, I, I, yeah, I, can't remember exactly. They were working on a number of different vaccines for a number of different uh, conditions. So, uh, yeah, so this is not their first uh, foray into, yeah, but um, one of the first mRNA vaccines um, ever for any disease, along with uh, Pfizer's. And of course, Pfizer's was developed in uh, conjunction with BioNTech, which is the German company that had uh, the, that technology. So they were actually developing mRNA-based vaccines uh, for cancers. And so when COVID came, they had it, they just sort of uh, developed a pipeline for that. So it was very cool how they were able to really uh, leverage their technologies and the research so quickly. Can you give us a little bit of a refresher on the difference between mRNA vaccines and, and others? Just because I kind of forgot. Sure. Yeah. So right now, I think um, at least in you know Western countries, the ones that we have available are the mRNA and the adeno-associated uh, viral vector vaccines. Um, we don't have any of the traditional vaccines, which are typically um, you have a weakened or inactivated um, whole virus. So these vaccines are genetic vaccines, the mRNA and the viral vector vaccine. So the mRNA vaccines basically um, contain the mRNA code that encodes for a specific part of any virus or pathogen. In this case, for COVID-19, it encodes for a part of the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that 
causes COVID-19. So mRNA is actually um, derived from DNA. So D the you know, the central dogma of molecular biology is DNA to RNA to protein. So DNA is in the nucleus of the cell and DNA doesn't go in and out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm and then get translated into protein because it's a very, that would be very inefficient because then it would have to go back into the nucleus. So in order to have a messenger that can actually decode or carry the code from DNA, out into the cytoplasm of a cell, you have this messenger molecule called RNA. So the RNA is actually transcribed from DNA. Um, and it's basically like a reverse photocopy, like I like to call it, of DNA. So it's basically like photocopying the DNA, kind of a reverse copy. And then the RNA travels out into the cytoplasm. And then you have the machinery of the cell that translates that RNA code into your protein. And so the vaccine delivers that code for the spike protein. You, the cell produces a spike protein, presents it on the surface of the cell. Your body sees that as a foreign entity and it's like, okay, hey, like what is this? And then so the immune system and your immune cells uh, come in, you have cytokines and you have a whole immune response um, against that spike protein that's presented on the cell. And then your body produces antibodies, uh, specific uh, T cells and B cells against that spike protein. And there you go, you're, there's your immunity. The, that's... yeah, sorry. <laughs> when I like start like talking about that, it might be a bit too detailed because we can cut this out. But uh, so the AAV, the adeno-associated viral vector vaccines, they actually um, have the DNA code that codes for the spike protein. So not the RNA, but the DNA code. And the DNA code is actually um, transported into cells via a vector. And that vector is actually a virus. It's a viral-based vector. So it's like a transport vehicle. So basically, you're putting a piece of the virus for the coronavirus into another virus. It sounds kind of weird, but that's how it works, because viruses are very good at infecting cells. So, you know, in the lab and in molecular biology, we use them as transport vehicle vehicles to get stuff into cells. So if we want to get certain genes into cells, um, those, especially the adeno-associated uh, viruses are really great for getting genes into cells. So basically for the DNA uh, AAV uh, vaccines like the ones from Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca. Uh, the technology is based basically on these um, viral vectors that are taking in the um, gene for the spike protein into cells, and then the same process. Where, that actually yeah. makes sense. That's yeah. It. Like, yeah, no, it actually does. Like, thank you. I, 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 you explained that really, really well. And another question I had about Moderna specifically is: Do you know if there's been any studies about? Um, immunity and how long um, that's supposed mm -hmm. to last? So the latest that I've seen is for Moderna, I haven't seen a lot of data, um, but for Pfizer, I know that the latest was that immunity is, is at least six months. And I think that might be the case for Moderna as well, especially because they're, they're the same technology. So, you know, it makes sense that you would see sort of the same thing and their vaccine efficacies were very comparable as well. So, so far it's up to six months. Um, and I actually saw a, a preprint the other day that was saying, because of course you have your antibodies and then you have T cell mediated immunity. And so T cell immunity can be lifelong. And so I think for Pfizer, they were actually saying that the immunity could be 
long lasting and lifelong. We may not need boosters. So yeah, promising data, data coming out. And it's like so crazy because like, um, we're getting all of this in real time, right? So as time progresses, we get more data and we're seeing, okay, well, at three months, we still have antibodies and T-cell immunity in six months and then nine months and 12 months. So as time goes along, yeah, well, we're just waiting to see things unfold. So yeah, sorry about that long explanation. <laughs> like I get a little too uh, caught up in it, but um, yeah. But then you, uh, you have like the uh, traditional vaccines like I talked about, but we don't have any of those in North America. So yeah. What I about AstraZeneca? AstraZeneca is the AAV, the viral vector. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. sorry. That's different from the traditional. Um, yeah, the traditional, okay. um, you actually have the whole virus in, in, in the vaccine. Oh, okay. And it's either um, weakened or inactivated or killed by things like, you know, heat or just serial passaging to weaken the, path the virus so that it won't cause infection and be harmful. So uh, which countries, that, sorry, go ahead, Mira. Yeah, I was going to say, are those Sinopharm and Sputnik? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sputnik, I, I feel like Sputnik is the AAV viral. Oh, is it? I oh, could I be know. wrong, though. Um, Sputnik, the Russian one, right? Yeah, but I think Sinopharm definitely is the yeah. traditional form of the vaccine. Sinopharm, yeah. Sputnik, yeah, I'm not quite sure, but... Um, yeah, we, those take a bit longer to develop. Also, um, they say that they're a little bit more nonspecific because like you have the whole virus there, but really you need to just target parts of the virus that are critical for, you know, like the spike protein has been targeted in, in the mRNA and DNA vaccines because that is the protein that binds to cells. And so blocking, so that's a critical uh, protein on the virus. So traditional vaccines, you have like the whole virus and you might get like a non-specific, you know, immune response to like different parts of it. So it's not as specific and it's unnecessary basically. So, um, but immunity is longer lasting, um, they say with the traditional vaccine. So pros and cons to each, but the mRNA ones are great because uh, the technology platforms is like plug and play. You can just put in any code you want for your mRNA and like within two days, you can get like your vaccine prototype. So that's so interesting. And yeah. this may be an ignorant question, but why didn't they come out sooner? Well, uh, there were trials ongoing for, I think, mRNA vaccines for different things like cancers. Um, at, we have active trials going on right now. Um, also, I think Ebola. Um, there is uh, an mRNA vaccine for Ebola being tested. So it wasn't all of this stuff like was in the pipelines. It's just everything got sped up with COVID for COVID, right? I see. And so it also exposed like, you know, um, sort of the deficiencies that we have in, in development, um, you know, in the pharma world or and, and things like that, or even in academia, where you have so much like red tape and bureaucracy and the development process uh, from applying for grants, funding, um, you know, getting the approvals and then regulatory approvals. So I think COVID really showed us that we can shorten those timelines as we've discussed um, in previous uh, shows and stuff. So, yeah.
these things were have been around for 10, 20 years. mRNA technology has been around for a good 20 years. But it was just a matter of COVID <laughs> to come along and uh, accelerate things. So we have an mRNA vaccine, uh, first ever. Got it. That answers my question. Cool. Okay. So I think with that... That's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. So if you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.